All right, we're in Jonah 4. Okay, we're coming to the end. We've been in, in this quite a, it's, it's quite a roller coaster of a story, quite a funny story. Uh, we said it's, it's a comedy. Things, things are backwards. Things are upside down. We're getting towards the end of the story, and there's some more twists coming. Um, before we do that, I just want to intro us with, uh, with this setup. I recently, well, actually, it's been a while, um, I came across this article called, <clears throat> the title gives away a lot, You Aren't As Beautiful As You Think, okay? It's a, it, was a, it was a study that was published by the Scientific American, I think. And um, it was this, like, summary of all of these, um, these different uh, studies about what psychologists call a superiority complex. And basically, uh, let me give an example. In one of the studies, they asked people how attractive they believe themselves to be, okay? And they had like a one to 10 scale, like one is like Shrek ugly, and 10 is like Instagram supermodel, okay? And this is probably not that surprising to you. Uh, When people were supposed to rate others' attractiveness, they were pretty like in the middle, like three to seven. They would like stay right there. But if they were supposed to rate themselves, the average was like six to eight, like consistently. Or another very similar study said that 80% of people think that they are more attractive than the average person. And if you know a little bit about math, that doesn't work well. You can't have 80% thinking they're more attractive Okay, another one, uh, they studied teachers. 70% of teachers, listen to this, think that they are in the top 20% of best teachers. 70% think they're in the top 20%. And that, that also says that they're judging their colleagues. They're, they're saying, like, they're not as good as me, okay? Another one, this one, uh, oh, there's someone eating, there's someone exercise, but I wanna, I'm going to skip those. Driving. This one's funny. People have huge, very big illusions about their own driving skills. Very quick to criticize others, especially if you're sitting in the back seat, right? Back seat drivers are quick to help. One study said that 90, 90% believe that they are above average drivers. 90%. What's, you understand how this works. This means that people are being really gracious. Like, yeah, I, I, I sometimes cut people off. Or I can parallel park sometimes. And they're really gracious with all those times they're not able to. And a really quick to judge others. 90%. Of, I wanted to do it like here. How many of you think you're better? Like, I, and I was like, no, I'm just going to embarrass everybody. Like, who here thinks they're, okay, let's do it. Who thinks they're a better driver than the average person? Now you're all going to be like humble and stuff. Oh, okay. I definitely do. My friend Jim there, I know he does. <laughs> Lisa, that's really humble of you to, I've, you're a safe driver. I've, I've seen you. You're very safe. You have four kids in the car. Okay. A preachers? Oh, my goodness. That's a, that's a hidden. That's a good one. How many preachers think they're above? That's okay. 
No, I read books. Like, there's a reason we have a problem. People get up here thinking they can speak on behalf of God. It attracts certain narcissists. It's a problem. We've, we talk about that. There's, I don't want to see those studies. We'll look at them together in, behind closed doors. Um, if you're new to our church, I'm not making, we just recognize it's a problem, okay? <laughs> so, uh, so why am I saying all this? Social psychologist Jonathan Haidt concludes from his research on this, very simply, self-righteousness is the natural human condition. That's, that's kind of funny. Like, you know what your automatic mode is? Self-righteousness. I'm better than those people. We judge others quickly and strictly. We judge ourselves. Um, we're, we're quite lazy and inconsistent and forgetful when we judge ourselves. We judge ourselves by our virtues, and we judge others by their faults. We're quick to apply grace to my mishaps. Oh, I'm so sorry, I cut you off. I, I don't usually do that. Quick to judge the crazy driver. Say, what a crazy, label him. What, an, it, what, an, what a bad driver. So why, why, what, where's Jonah in all this? So Jonah, if you've been with us, man, there's, a few, there's been a few Jonah chapters already. We have runaway Jonah, like Brit, if you were here, Brittany kind of gave a brief intro on this. We have runaway Jonah. God says, go. He's a prophet. He shouldn't know what to do with that statement, that instruction. God says, go. He says, no, not going to go. We have runaway Jonah first. Then we see sleeping Jonah. He gets on a boat running away on this boat, a storm comes, all these sailors, these pagan sailors are crying out to their own gods. The one guy that has like hotline to God is sleeping while people are dying. So we have runaway Jonah, we have sleeping Jonah, then we have drowning Jonah. <laughs> they throw him off the boat. God stills the storm that he hurled to cause that crazy, crazy, uh, I'm giving you kind of the the, uh, the quick, like the first seven minutes of up, the quick little snippets of the whole story, okay? If you're not tracking, you can read the whole thing. Drowning Jonah, briefly we have praying Jonah because he's sent, he's, he's, uh, he, he, God sends a, a big fish and in the belly of the fish, when he is down at the bottom, he's like, okay, maybe I need help. And so he prays briefly. And right after that, one of my favorite lines in the whole book, we get to the first line of chapter three, we get second chance Jonah. Second chance Jonah. The line is, um, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah again. That's a good line, again. Saying like, you can mess it up <laughs> and, and God will still come again. That's his nature. So Jonah is like, he's He's been on a journey. He's second chance Jonah. He gets it. He goes to Nineveh. He, he preaches. And we saw last week, Brandon was, thank you, Brandon, for serving us last week. I really, that was Brandon's sixth sermon and it really, in his life. And it just really served me well. And he, he showed how we're all like Jonah and all like Nineveh. Nineveh repents. Nineveh turns. This is amazing. Nineveh turns, 120,000 people come, this evil, violent city. They turn to God, and God, when he sees them turning, he spares them. This is like textbook, prophet textbook, best case scenario stuff. 
And so we get to chapter 4. That's where we are today. And you would think that chapter 4 would begin this way. You would think that it went something like this. And Jonah also rejoiced with that repentant city. And Jonah went home and, and told his fellow prophets in prophecy school, you'll never believe what God did. 120,000 people, I kid you not, from king to beggars, from soldiers to cobblers, they, they all repented. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Isn't this amazing? That's what we'd expect, right? But here's what happens. We actually find a sulking Jonah and a judging Jonah. Let's read the first four verses of chapter four. It'll be up on the screen right here. Here's the line. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. What's the this? They re that Nineveh was saved. To Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? We're going to stop right there. And that's... <laughs> It's a good question. Is it right for you to be angry? Now, we said this every Sunday. Our first instinct, we read stuff like this, is why did he do that? What is wrong with him? And we got to immediately ask, wait a second, why do I do that? What is wrong with me? Why do I do that? Let's pray, and then we're going to look at these three pieces of Jonah's story. You can throw that up there, Andre. How... Our obedience can blind our hearts. That's actually what's going on sometimes. How anger might reveal our hearts and how self-righteousness will poison our hearts. Let me pray. God, we are very much like Jonah. We laugh at, at him and we laugh because it's true, and we laugh because it's true of us. And even right now, I know that some of us are struggling with it. We're like, well, I don't, I don't do, I don't really do that. I pray that you would meet us and that you would show us that, um, that we don't love people like you do, that we are not gracious with people like you are, and that we need to go further into your heart. And thank you that you go further into ours and bring us there. So that's, that's why we gather each week, is to huddle together, be reminded of who you are, and then go share with others. So we're here, and we ask that you do it. Amen. So how our obedience can blind our hearts, that's a strange sentence, I know, but it's true. How our anger might reveal our hearts and how our self-righteousness will poison our hearts. How our obedience can blind our hearts. So that first verse to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. It, it's a strange verse. If, if, okay, musicians in the room, if you finally get to go play a show at the Showbox up in Seattle, or you, you, fill, you, you pack out the Tacoma Dome, and then you say, no, I'm good, I'm not gonna do it. That would be really strange. Artists, 
Do artists get upset when they finally get an invitation to do an exhibition at the Tacoma Art Museum? Do they get upset? Do, do minor league um, players get upset when they get a call to go pitch for the big leagues? Do they? They don't. This is a dream scenario of little Jonah in prophecy school. That, that's, that was kind of a thing, not exactly that kind of thing. <laughs> like a whole city, a whole 120,000 people repenting after a sermon? That's like big league stuff. And Jonah finds it very wrong that God has compassion on these people. That very first little verse, if you have uh, different translations, might, you might have the word that Jonah found it very evil. And that's really interesting choice of words because if you remember at the very beginning of this book, God found Nineveh evil. And it's like kind of coming full circle. And what's interesting is the people that wrote it actually highlight, they say, Jonah found it very evil that God had compassion. When they described how evil Nineveh was, it's very, it was evil, but they just said it was evil. And now we get to Jonah. And, and the way that it's written, it's like the author is trying to point out that it, it seems Jonah is more upset with Nineveh's deliverance than God was with its sin. Jonah's really upset. It's a crazy twist. Many people who have written on Jonah have drawn the parallel that when you look at these four chapters, it looks a lot like one of the most famous stories ever told. Charles Dickens was asked, what's the, most, what's the best short story in the world? And he said, the parable that Jesus told about the older and younger brother, what we know as the prodigal son story, if you're kind of familiar with churchy stories. And Jonah follows that map. What do I mean? Well, in, in both stories, you begin with someone on the run. Someone on the run away from God. Jonah begins as that younger son who goes and says, no, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. And then right in the middle of both of those stories, this younger son finds himself in a pit down below. In the prodigal son story, he is down with the pigs and he cries out and says, I think I need to go back. I need help. With Jonah, he is down in the depths, the pits of the sea, and a fish is there, and he cries out. That's not the end of either of those stories. What happens later? The younger son in the story that Jesus told comes back. The father's delighted. My son's come back. And he throws an amazing party, a rager, and the older son is not happy with this. Do you see the parallel with Jonah? Jonah begins as a younger son on the run, but somewhere in the middle, he flips. And when God invites these runaway Ninevites into his place, into his kingdom, when he throws them a party, Jonah stands outside the city and says, uh-uh, I'm not going to this party. I, he's, un, he's unhappy. 
Listen to the, the words of the older brother in the parable that Jesus told. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Do you see how obedience can be blinding? Never disobeyed your orders, but you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. And that parable ends. You know what the last scene is? The father goes out to this stubborn, self-righteous, something at blank of a son and pleads with him. He's pleading with him. Isn't that a great picture? Our, the father comes out and he doesn't say, he doesn't smack him. He says, hey, come join the party. And similarly in Jonah right now, I mean, you'd expect that after this, God would be like, okay, enough, send the lion. Just give him a lion. Like, I try to save him with a, with a big fish, and this is, the, like, there's one too many. There's a lot of lions around. Go get him. Seriously. But if that was God's posture towards us, I think there'd be a lot of people without hands and arms or like, I wouldn't be preaching if lions were out to get those who were stubborn. God is super gracious. He comes. But what's really sad, what's really sad is these two pictures of older brothers missing out at grace parties, these stubborn older brothers. Jonah, in some sense, did come back from his runaway to Tarshish, to Nineveh, but in this moment, it's revealed that his heart is still on the road to Tarshish. Our obedience can be blinding. Je Jesus constantly pointed this out with the people that he bumped into when he was doing his ministry. He, he specifically warns people who are proud of their obedience. In Luke 18, Jesus says, this is verse nine, he tells another story, he tells a parable, and this is the setup for it. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told a parable. That's pretty crazy. <laughs> like, Jesus is walking around and being like, okay, I see a lot of you are confident in your own righteousness and you look down on everyone else. Let me help you out with a story. Like, people need help from Jesus with this. And this is the story, different one. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. Pharisees, good, good guy. Tax collector, bad guy. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. It, that's the problem with obedience is so quickly, it leads us to be able to say, well, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not like those people. At least I'm not them. They language is a really like telling sign that you might be putting too much stock in your own performance and obedience. Jesus continues, but the tax collector, this guy, the, the they, he stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast. 
I didn't, I didn't catch that the first time. He's down, looking down, beating his breast. And he says, what's his, does he have a more elaborate prayer than the Pharisee? No, his is, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, let me explain this to you. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So family, we're, we're here together. I'm with you in this problem. It, it just seems that our obedience can make what once was amazing grace and turn it into assumed grace or forgotten grace or yes, I received some grace, but not as much as these guys, those guys receive grace. They, they need more grace than me. That's why obedience can be blinding. As soon as our prayer stops being, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, I'm in trouble. So I'm going to pause, and we're not going to do this out loud, though sometimes we do. Quietly, I'm just going to give you a minute. Who are those people for you. I might throw out some ideas for you to consider. It could be refugees, we're talking about them. It could be those people who have different ideas about what a fetus is than I. That's a serious issue. But are they those people for you? It could be just literally people that vote differently than you. Maybe for you it's like those Democrats or those Republicans. It could be those parents. At least I'm not my parents. I've done better than them. Take a minute and ask that question. And then I invite you to, to pray this prayer. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So that's how obedience can blind our hearts. And let's talk about anger for a little bit. You can come back. Um, how our anger might reveal our hearts. If, if obedience blinds our hearts, anger might reveal it, okay? So at this point, it's probably unnecessary and probably overstating it to say that Jonah is not the protagonist of this story. Did you notice that yet? You, in a story, you always have a protagonist and an antagonist. And you know where those words come from? It's like, who is agonizing over the pro, the good things, and who is agonizing over the bad things? That's, that's what those words mean. The protagonist agonizes over things that are right and righteous. And the antagonist is agonizing over evil things. 
So who's the protagonist in this story? It's not Jonah. He's the antagonist. The protagonist is God. He's the one agonizing over the right things. And God, where we stopped in this chapter, he gently comes to Jonah and says, is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? Is it right for you to agonize over what you're agonizing over? That word anger appears six times in this short little chapter. Now, we talk about emotions, I think, quite a bit. I mean, Rachel brought them up right at the beginning. We weren't even like two minutes into being together. We don't fear them. They're helpful, and they're also incredibly deceiving. The word, um, the anger, like most emotions, is a really helpful diagnostic tool. That's not all it is, but it's a really helpful diagnostic tool. When anger erupts in me, it is a signal that something is wrong. Anger is really helpful. Something is not right. Something is evil or incompetent or stupid. Eugene Peterson says that anger is a sixth sense for sniffing out wrong in my neighborhood. That's what anger is. It's really helpful. But what anger fails to do is tell us whether that wrong is outside us or inside us, right? Anger is really helpful. Something is wrong. It always is true. You will not be angry when everything is great. You won't. But what anger fails to tell us is whether the wrong thing that I'm angry about is outside me or inside me, and it can be deceiving, We usually assume our instinct is, I'm angry, that wrong must be outside me. Our spouse, my spouse is the wrong. My roommate is the wrong. My child is wrong. It's my boss who is wrong. That's why I'm angry. Our president is wrong. Or God is wrong. Or we we usually think outside. That's what Jonah did. But God's response do you do right to be angry? He's kind of like saying, hey, let's trace your little anger trail. Where is this coming from? Let's follow it. And if Jonah had had tracked that trail more carefully, he might find that there was some wrong within him that was causing so much anger, wrong information, possibly, inadequate understanding, He had like an underdeveloped imagination for what God might be up to in the world. Do you do right to be angry, God says. Jonah doesn't respond. That, I was, I was, sometimes I read something like six times and then the seventh time I'm like, oh my goodness, he doesn't respond to him. Like God says, is it right for you to be angry? And I think Jonah, because then the next verse that we didn't read, we'll read it next week, is Jonah walks out of the city. It's like, what? God says, do you do right to be angry? And I think Jonah just gave him the stare. Like, it's like, he just left him. Do you do right to be angry? He just walks away. He just gives him the look. Anger's helpful, family. Crisis reveals character. 
the traffic, we talk a lot about traffic. The stuff that comes out of you in traffic is not an accident. The stuff that comes out of you with your kids doing something if you're a parent is not an accident. Often, we might apologize to somebody that we blew up on and say, I'm, re- I'm really sorry. I have no idea where that came from. You know where it came from? It came from within. Like, that's, that's not the other you. That's, that's, that's me. Private me or me at work when a problem hits is really more me than the public me, than the church me, than like we could really, I, I think most of us are doing a great job, congratulations for one and a half hours of not blowing up at each other. Great job. Good deal. Someone deserves that. Uh, and, it's, and, and, and it's okay. God, it's not, don't, the, the answer to that is, well, look, well, I got to hold it together and do a better job when I'm in traffic or when I'm at work. It's not that. What does God do when his anger spills out? He comes to him kindly and gently and says, hey, can, what's going on? Can we talk about this? And that's why, as a family, we, we love getting together on Sundays. It's like a really important time for us. But we really don't think that we can be effective disciples of Jesus unless we're rubbing shoulders with each other during the week and eating in each other's homes and watching um, kids of another family destroy my house or um, having, yeah, I had, I had, no, I'm not going to share that. Anyway, I was about to share, <laughs> I was about to share something I shouldn't. Uh, we believe that we need God through his spirit, through my brother or sister to come to me gently and for Brandon to come to me and say, hey, Dawson, do you think you do right to be angry about this? Like, where's your, where, where is some of this stuff in, in you that you're thinking is all outside? We need that. We need that. Now, listen, just one little, I don't think it's a cab, it's like, it's right there, but I'm going to kind of shift us a little bit with anger. There's a lot to be angry about. There's a lot to be angry about in the world today, in your world There's a lot to be angry about. Globally, there's unjust wars. There's unjust killings of kids. There's unjust refusal of refugees. We could go on, of refugees. And in your world, there is serious stuff that deserves anger. There's sometimes we, and by we I mean us living in America or in the Western world, we actually have a problem with a God who judges sometimes, we're, we're a lot quicker to, like, you guys are really tracking and nodding with me when I'm like, he's so gracious, he comes to him, he's like gentle, and that's true. It is true of him. But God is also just. And we, in our world, actually have a lot, it's harder for us to deal with the justice of God than some people in other cultures Um, A guy named Tim Keller says that some have pointed out that you have to have had a pretty comfortable life without any experience of oppression and injustice yourself to not want a God who punishes sin. And he quotes a writer who has seen genocide in his homeland, and this guy writes, it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the idea that we should desire 
a God who refuses to judge people for their wickedness. He says, in sun-scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea of a God who doesn't judge dies quickly. Ukrainians right now are praying for the justice of God. That's really important. So what's going on with Jonah? Is he right or is he wrong? Because he wants judgment. For this, like, we already, I, I'm not going to do it again. The last couple of weeks we did it. We explained the evil of the Ninevites. It's rough. It's, R, it's more than R-rated. It's like, it is, it's traumatizing. Some of the stuff we couldn't, we were like, we're not going to share that. That's too much. It makes sense that Jonah wants justice. What's going on with him? Jonah actually quotes in our short passage that prayer he prays is a direct quote from Exodus. And it's kind of like it, it's this, his tone is like, I knew, I knew this. I knew this about you, you dirty forgiver. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. That's a direct quote from Exodus 34, but it's a problem because it's an incomplete quote. It's like digging up some dirt on someone from Twitter, finding this like out of context, one little 180 character statement and saying, look what this guy believes. That's what Jonah's doing to God. He's saying, you're just so great. You're just, oh, so we're just going to be all forgiving to everybody in the world who's evil. It, and he says, and you said it in Exodus well, it's a misquote. If you read all of Exodus 34, it starts, the Lord, the Lord God, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Jonah, that was the tweet before the tweet. Like, you can't do that. You can't just select it. So do you hear the tension? We have a problem. No wonder Jonah is confused. The Lord God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. What's that mean? All the Venn diagram, all the guilty will be punished. And on the other hand, we also have a statement that says, you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. We have two separate circles that do not overlap. Guilty go punished. Those who repent get forgiven. How does this work? No wonder Jonah is confused. I still have one point for my sermon, but this might be the good news that you need to hear. In order to figure out that tension, we have to go to a different city. We need to go from Nineveh to Jerusalem to a different time a few hundred years later and walk up a hill called Calvary and look at Jesus dying on a cross so that all of sin is paid for, everyone is punished through him, and that all who repent get forgiveness. It, we have a little bit of, we can give Jonah a little bit of slack because he's on the wrong side of the cross, but we looking back at the cross understand how this tension is resolved. And we can pray prayers against Putin like you just did. We can pray for his repentance, and it's not a problem. He is quick to forgive. 
We look at Jesus to, 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 to relieve that tension that Jonah was feeling. How can this stuff go unpaid for? This is not right. This is not right. And Jonah was missing the picture of Jesus dying for the Ninevites. Jesus on the cross had great love for the Ninevites of that generation, the 120,000 who repented. Last one, our self-righteousness might poison us. I said our obedience can blind us. It might, our anger might blind our hearts, but self-righteousness is not a might, it's a will. It, it will poison us. Um, the Times once sent out this inquiry, it's like in the 40s, I believe, 1940s, to a bunch of famous authors. And they asked a simple question, like, could you give us a response, write a little column on what's wrong with the world today? If we were to do that right now, like if we were to say, hey, what's wrong with the world today? We could give different headlines. And I already, I already kind of like listed some of them. Um, it's, it's the warmongers. It's, it's the freeloaders in our city. It's the baby killers over here. I'm, I'm trying to swing from left to right politically, okay? We would have a lot of headlines. 1940s, 2020s, probably very similar headlines. And one man named G.K. Chesterton who helped a guy named C.S. Lewis, if you've heard of that name, come to know the grace of God. G.K. Chesterton wrote a, his piece back, and he wrote four words. The question was, what's wrong with the world today? He wrote, dear sirs, I am. G.K. Chesterton. Self-righteousness says, I am fine. They are the problem. Those who are gripped by grace say, I am the problem. Lord, have mercy on me. And man, we, that, that person is so gracious to all the they's. There's no longer a they, it's, it's a we. Those people come alongside and say, me too. Self-righteousness says, I am fine. Yes, I sin, but I don't sin like them. They sin worse. There's... There's way too much of Jonah in Jonah's argument. Jonah, actually, there's a lot of dialogue between Jonah and God. And that beautiful prayer in the belly, is a, it, he is saying, God, it, it is, he's close. It's not perfect, but he's saying, God, you are good. You are going to save me. You met me here. You found me. Back here, now that he's back to self-righteous Jonah, there's a ton of Jonah in his prayer. And it's just, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home, what I tried to forestall? I knew that you were a dirty forgiver. Now, Lord, take away my life for it is better for me. That's the prayer of a self-righteous person. And that's a big contrast from where he was when he was in the belly of the fish. The sweetest moment Jonah has in this whole crazy comedy is in the belly of the fish. 
in the belly of the fish that God sends to save him. Some of you know that I grew up in Eastern Europe. All over Eastern Europe, you'll find little churches that have pulpits. This sounds like I'm making it up. That are shaped like a whale, like a big fish. It looks freaky. <laughs> you, can, you can see why we not made that choice. <laughs> I, there was a bunch of them. You can land on this last one. I just picked three. Okay, that's an ups. You see the, you see the fish there? So the, the idea is all over, like they're really there. And I know that seems very different and we're pretty laid back. I'm wearing a sweater, all that, like very different than the ornate stuff here. But there is a lot of intentionality with these pulpits. I kind of do want the pulpit. Laurel's like, I could bake you one for, my wife was like, I can make you one for this one Sunday. I was like, it's going to look terrible. But I kind of want one. Do you know why? Think about it. What is this saying? It's actually a beautiful picture. Somebody wrote about it. It was once the fashion in Bohemia and Silesia of Eastern Europe to build pulpits in the shape of an upright whale. In order to take place as a preacher, the pastor or priest had to enter in the interior of the pulpit at the base, climb a ladder, and go through the belly of the fish. And then they open their mouth. Only then do they have a sermon to deliver. Now, I don't want to elevate the pulpit or people that stand up here. I'm saying we have to live in the belly of the fish. In everyday life, we get up in the morning, and in order for us to not live, uh, well, me and they over their life, we have to get up and walk through the belly of the fish and then stay in the belly of the fish, recognizing God have mercy on me. And if we don't, we graduate from the belly and we become self-righteous Jonas who don't love our neighbors that live on Nineveh Lane, as Brandon called it. Self-righteous Jonas. In the belly of the well, whale, in the belly of the fish, we are gripped by grace. There is like a picture. We're gripped by grace. In the belly of the, the fish is when grace becomes amazing to us. Amazing grace. And we know that. If you're a Jesus follower, it's because at some point you were gripped by grace. You were so done with you that you cried out to God and said, save me, save me. But we do a huge injustice to the way of following Jesus when we put so much stock into a moment and we even call it like, I invited Jesus into my heart. Like, what in the world? No, like you were gripped by grace. You were swallowed up. And you need to be daily. We don't need to invite, it's not a one and done thing. Like, look at Jonah. It takes a few days to graduate from the belly of the fish. We need to be gripped by grace. Or else we'll become these older brothers living in the streets of Tacoma, missing out on parties that God might have in store for the least likely people in our minds. In his mind, it's just people. 
And next week, we're going to finish this chapter, and then we're going to specifically have some people share and pray about some of those people, immigrants, um, the homeless, and we're going to invite a friend of mine to talk about race and how that can sometimes be some of those people for us. So we're going to continue in really practical ways next week, have a prayer gathering. But I'd like to ask for us to respond right now. I'm going to read the words to Amazing Grace, at least the first two paragraphs, and then we're going to sing that song, and then we're going to respond in communion. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. He's longing for fish belly moments, how precious it was. We need it precious daily. I'm going to invite Brittany to come up. And guys, before we eat this, I heard someone recently say, the Lord's table, this is what we're doing, is not a potluck meaning we don't bring anything to this table. It's not a potluck. We don't bring a side of our good works. We don't bring any, we don't get to bring and set on the table our shame. We come as we are and the table is set with this and we're reminded that there's amazing grace for us. Amazing grace, how sweet Was blind.